Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers Podcast. The show, the curious ones, the ones that want to learn to fly high from individuals creating value in a variety of industries and roles to learn about their sunrise, their magic moments, their hustle, and a load of golden nuggets and insights to help you be 1% better every day. And I'm your host, Vita Tagalog. In this episode, we speak with Ridley Lover and his journey from the world of skiing to the Super Bowl to the Australian Open tennis, the exciting world of sport, commercial activations and partnerships, fan engagement, living and working in New York, Toronto, Melbourne, and world first brand campaigns and events and really exciting behind the scenes of global sport. Are you ready to fly high? Ridley, welcome to the show. Really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me. Let's kick things off with a warm-up rapid fire round just to get us ready and ease into it and help the listeners understand a bit about yourself. So what is your most favorite Netflix show? Uh, so at the moment, I've been watching a combination of Snowpiercer and uh, The Sinner. I think I like The Sinner. Yeah, it's good. Gets you thinking. Nice. That's a good good balance. And I know you're a big running enthusiast. Is there one destination that you love running at? It's hard to beat Albert Park in Melbourne. I think it's just... It's so picturesque. You're so close to the city, but there's space as well. And then you're running around the lake. It's it's beautiful. And the fact that it's a uh, a Formula One track at the same time is pretty impressive. Definitely. And what's one thing you love doing on the weekend? Weekend, um, going and getting a coffee, a proper coffee, take away, walk around the park with the dogs. Um, it's a really nice sort of, it's a way to start a Saturday or a Sunday and and actually get out, get some fresh air, and uh, and have a wander and not be uh, stuck inside like we are at the moment. Amazing. You're definitely flying the Melbourne flag there <laughs> with Albert Park and a coffee. <laughs> awesome, mate. Well, let's let's get into the episode and understand more about yourself. So we always like to kick things off with, with your early journey. We call it a sunrise. To understand what formed you into the person today and if there were any key things that you look back on that you go, well, really influential in your life? I guess uh, I started out sort of in sport like a long, long time ago. Um, I've always been interested in sport. I grew up in Mansfield in country Victoria. And for those who don't know, Mansfield is only about a 40-minute drive to the snow. So I, uh, I grew up really fortunately being able to ski every weekend through the winter and, and through the sort of earlier years at school. Uh, was able to ski on a Thursday as part of their leisure and recreation program, which was really great. Uh, it got me interested in in sport. It uh, it got me interested in how business works. Uh, I think somewhere like like the snow is a is a really great place to meet people as well, um, particularly from different backgrounds. And and I met a lot of people from Melbourne in that time and made some fantastic networks. And it opened up some really amazing opportunities for me to to travel overseas and to get insight into uh, different industries and and different uh, cultures as well I guess so that was sort of the the like later years of my teen 
life and then I actually was fortunate enough to start coaching skiing and and uh, that sort of led me to a couple of trips over to Canada to coach on a couple of camps over there and and sort of I think that was a real education piece for me as well it's sort of it it was sport but it was teaching and it was uh, human activity at the same time you've, you've got to work out how to how to coach individuals that are all very different and and talk to people and provide feedback and it doesn't always have to be positive feedback a lot of the time you're providing not not necessarily negative feedback but you're trying to teach them to do something better in a way that they may not be doing really well yeah that's that's fascinating and, and how did you get into skiing was it someone who kind of got you into it was it your parents or did you grow up watching it definitely parents were an influence dad uh, actually worked up at the resort when we first moved up here as a as an instructor um, and some good friends of ours uh, spent a lot of time up there as well locally here in Mansfield so uh, it was definitely something that naturally comes with the territory living up uh, in the in the high country yeah and and did you get a chance to go overseas as well to ski because I know you mentioned you done a few competitions predominantly locally but definitely got the opportunity to compete a couple of times in a number of events in Canada so I I was fortunate enough to travel over there to train on a camp uh, out of Silver Star in British Columbia and then a couple of years later was fortunate enough to go back and coach on that same camp so great experience over there and the snow over there and the the skiing scene over there is is black and white compared to Australia Really interesting, and then clearly your sport's a big part of your life now because you're, I guess, working full time in sport. So I think that'd be a good, good chance to ask as well around your magic moments because I know just talking to people in my life, there's there's always a few along the way that people look back on and go there were critical moments or learnings or experiences. Have you had a few that you you would like to share with listeners in, in life or in yeah, definitely work wise. Um... Before I started at Tennis Australia, I was with a, a company called Buzz Products and we sort of fortunately fell into a, a number of jobs with Budweiser and Bud Light in North America, so particularly in Toronto and, and New York. Uh, they, they were projects that involved enhancing the consumer experience of sport, particularly ice hockey and NFL, both in the stadium and then in the home. So they were sort of let out of some findings that that I think there's about 95% of people in in North America will, will never get the opportunity to go to a live sporting match, whether that be ice hockey or NFL or uh, baseball or whatever it happens to be. So what they wanted to do was really enhance that in-home experience. And I think through those through those projects and the learnings that I took particularly as an individual from setting up the projects, executing the projects and ensuring that when when that button got pushed to, to trigger the moment, that it everything worked perfectly uh, because you only got one chance at doing that. And that sort of then eventually led to an activation at Super Bowl in 2018, which uh, I was fortunate enough to, to travel to in Minneapolis and, uh, yeah, watch the... The fly uh, Philadelphia Eagles uh, 
beat the New England Patriots in in a pretty amazing Super Bowl. Actually, it, it broke so many records, and it was just one of those moments that you're sort of standing there watching the game, going, "Wow, I'm at I'm at Super Bowl with sixty thousand Americans who have probably dreamt of this moment for for years and years and years, and it's their bucket list thing." And we were sitting there in control of a whole stadium experience for those 60,000 people. So that was sort of one of those wow moments that you have to sort of pinch yourself a little bit. Yeah, again, fascinating. I think for someone like me who's a big sports fanatic and enjoy watching it and understanding it, it's really inspiring listening to that. I think on that, perhaps a question some of the listeners tuning in to this episode might ask is how does that process work? If you can perhaps touch on a few points around the Super Bowl, just to give people a bit of an insight into what you actually did and how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. So Super Bowl is a whole beast in itself. Um, the the regulations that you have to go through, the I guess the, the technical aspects of bringing an activation to life at the Super Bowl are completely different to any other sporting event that you've, you've ever experienced. So... Uh, from from our perspective, what we were actually activating was a, a cup or a beer cup within the stadium that had a, a sequence of LED lights in the base of it that were controlled by a radio frequency within the stadium. So if you can't sort of picture that in your head, uh, you may have seen the, the Taylor Swift concerts where they have the flashing wristbands. So it was basically taking a similar technology to those flashing wristbands and embedding it into the bottom of a beer cup. So when someone scored a touchdown or someone ran onto the field or there was a magic moment in the game, all the 60,000 beer cups in the stadium would all be flashing either green for Philadelphia or blue for New England and then uh, vice versa for different moments across the, the event. So what that involves is basically going into the stadium uh, taking a snapshot of the whole stadium and then pre-planning where all of your radio frequency transmitters are going to go because radio frequency in that sort of sense is driven by the the antenna that's in the cup. So you, you can imagine that antenna is really, really small. Uh, so basically we had about 60 or 70 transmitters throughout the stadium. So they're generally up in the, the catwalk or, or in the ceiling of the the stadium and they're then controlled from a central point so they all talk to one another and when you press the button similar to how a garage door button or your car opening button works that as soon as you press it it sends out a radio frequency signal and almost instantly uh, all of the the cups within that range are triggered to activate so it's uh and you can imagine there's a, a hell of a lot of testing and certification that goes on to be able to use that sort of technology when you've also got uh, global broadcasters taking live feeds from the stadium, also using radio frequency. You've got uh, hundreds of security guards on microphones also, and, and radios also using radio frequency as well. And you need to slot in amongst all of that noise that's happening in the stadium. And, and your activation is the lowest on the list of priorities when it comes to activating Super Bowl. Yeah, and I would imagine as part of that, there'd be a lot of conflicting distractions perhaps on the day and also leading up. How did you go about that? And looking back now in your current role, do you think there were any learnings that you've applied that you go being part of such a global event was a good stepping stone? Yeah, absolutely. These, these events are 
are so well orchestrated. I think that's the the and likewise with the Australian Open, which we now work on, or which I now work on um, over the past few years. There, it's always amazing to see how well orchestrated these events are. And I remember a, a couple of NHL games that I activated that the the team that was running the event could tell me that they would be within two or three seconds of their schedule, even 20, 25 minutes into the game. So they were pretty much like, if you start your timer now and press it on this second in the 20 minute mark, we'll be bang on. You, you'll wow. be right to go. So it, they are literally, they're so dialed in, in everything that they do. Um, but there is elements of chaos. There's, there's unknown moments that happen. And we had a, an instance at the New England Patriots kickoff game in uh, late 2017 where they couldn't hear the performer coming through the, the main microphones. There was probably two or three minutes of absolute chaos where where we were in the press box and, yeah, it was people running around everywhere and, and hands going in the air and buttons being pressed. And, yeah, it was probably one of those moments where the heart rate goes from about 70 to 130 very quickly. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. And, and if you zoom out from that experience in general, because I know just doing some research, you mentioned that you've worked in consumer experience in stadiums and also at home. And obviously in today's world, it's a different dynamic. When you look back on that, were there any, again, any key moments that I guess helped you propel yourself to, to today? And then you look back again and go that, consumer experience at home and TV and sponsorships really played a part? Yeah, definitely. The at-home experience is one that I think gets forgotten about a lot, particularly in the sports space. You're you're so focused on the experience when someone walks in the gates and who talks to them first, what their, uh, their engagement with information services is like, where do they find the bathrooms, where do they get a drink, where do they get their food? But there's also a, a massive amount of people that are watching at home. And, and so how do you bring a little bit of that stadium experience or the on-site experience into the home? And we're extremely fortunate now that we have so many different technologies that we can actually bring into the home. And, and that doesn't just mean using your phone. I think that's what a lot of people think or automatically go to is, how do I use the second screen or even the third screen to to bring an experience to the home? But often it's it's got to be more than that. It's got to be uh, surprise and delight, or it's got to be in the form of a physical product. And I think that's where, particularly for brands and sponsorship, there's a a market that's only just been touched on, and it's really only scraped the surface of of what can be bought to those tens of millions or hundreds of millions of consumers that are watching and engaging with those sports at home. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a space to definitely watch, I'd imagine, in the coming weeks and months. And Ridley, transitioning into your hustle, and I know you've touched a bit on it, going into specifically your current role, um, from my understanding, it's a really important role and an integral role of the business and a very customer external facing role. How would you describe the role and I'd love to also understand what helped you get to your current position today. Yeah, that's so you're right. In business solutions is an interesting space. It's a it's a space that 
is unique or quite unique to Tennis Australia. Uh, I don't know of too many other rights holders or sporting organisations that have uh, a business solutions arm. So basically the the role of business solutions is to provide creative solutions for business development and marketing partnerships. So whether that be through uh, the initial contact phase and providing assets for the business development team to talk to brands using. So that could be imagery proposals, videos, creative solutions for an, an initial pitch. How do we get away from PowerPoint is probably the the key moment in, in a lot of those conversations is how do we do things a little bit differently or how do we talk to a brand so they understand who we are and, and how we've actually thought about how their brand engages with our sport. So I think when when a lot of rights holders and and brands think sponsorship, they probably think your brand here or what is the gold, silver and bronze package? What do I get for $100,000? What do I get for $50,000, et cetera? So what we've tried to do through business solutions is is create an almost sort of internal agency in the way that we think about how a brand should partner with our event. So when we talk to a specific category, we'll actually look into the brand, what makes them tick, what they stand for, I guess, what what they want to achieve through a sponsorship with the Australian Open. And then we go away and, and think like an agency would think in how to bring that to life. So we're not just putting a, a proposal in front of them that says, here's the gold, silver and bronze option and your logo goes here and you get some tickets for this and you'll be a press release here. It's actually all right, you've got a massive focus on sustainability or you've got a huge focus on diversity and inclusion. So how do we bring your brand into those moments of our event or our business? And and I think it works really well in, in actually making brands think more creatively about how they involve themselves with a sponsorship with the Australian Open or Tennis Australia as well. Yeah, and I'd absolutely love to touch on that in more detail as well later in the episode but before we before we move on to that I think one of the questions that often listeners ask on this show is from guests like yourself is how did you get to the position you're in today um, and one of the obviously goals of the podcast is to help people be one percent better every day would there be any 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 advice or any experiences you can share with the listeners that they could perhaps be inspired by if they're looking to do a similar role to yourself yeah sure so I, I guess the first part of the the question, so how do I sort of get to where I am right now is is interesting. So where I was at Buzz, uh, not only was it about consumer experience, it was also about integrating with with brands and integrating with events. So I was sort of the we were sort of the middleman in a way as to how, let's say, Budweiser would work with. Uh, the NHL or the NFL or how Bud Light would work with the NFL, for example. And we then brought the product to life. So in a similar way to to what we do in Business Solutions, we actually bring the brand to the Australian Open. And we sort of sit as that middleman to create the the solution for them and, and think about not only how that's going to benefit Tennis Australia or the Australian Open, but how that's going to more benefit the brand that we're talking to. And I think. Um, in that sense of 
making sure that you're almost that one percent better every day i think it you have to love what you're doing and you have to be passionate about what you're doing you have to you have to have that moment in the morning where you get up and you want to go to work because you're excited about the project that you're going to work on that day or even if it's uh, through the day there, there might be a period where you want to finish one project because you're really excited about the next one that's coming so it's it's sort of a an evolution i guess of making sure that you're enjoying what you're doing but there's also that that motivation each day you, you, i think when you you get to that point that you don't want to get out of bed or you you're dreading going to work or you're dreading a project that you have to work on that's when you probably think maybe i'm not doing that that one percent or like how do i get that back where do i find that excitement in what i was doing or where do i find that excitement in what i was once doing that maybe i don't feel anymore yeah, and I think passion is probably the biggest takeaway there. And for me, tennis has always been a massive passion. And then I'm sure there's a lot of listeners tuning in to this episode who love sport and love the commercial side of sport. So I think touching on your point earlier around sport becoming bigger than just the game itself and, and bigger than just an experience on the day. I'd be curious to understand from your perspective, given your position at the moment, how have you being able to do that at Tennis Australia, at TA, and obviously the Australian Open being one of the premier sporting events in the world. I know you touched on earlier saying that it's more than just a sporting event. Would you mind sharing perhaps some experiences along the way? I know you've done a lot of campaigns that have been world first and a lot of feedback from tennis players where they say the Australian Open is the, the their favourite Grand Slam. Would you share some of the inside, inside learnings from that that listeners could yeah, so the, the AO is a unique event in the sense that it only happens once a year, uh, but we're we're fortunate that we get two weeks or, or almost three weeks to run the event. So we do uh, we do have to take a chance year on year that we're going to be better than the year before. And whether that means improving the guest experience or improving the on-site experience, improving activations putting more pressure on the brands that are activating to level up each year as you'd say um, ensuring that if someone came last year they're expecting something better than what they had the year before or they're expecting something new so how do we continue to innovate and think about what that experience is we're no longer just running a, a tennis tournament we're running a music festival, we're running uh, a day party, we're running 30 restaurants, we're, we're running a, an entertainment ballpark for kids and families. The tennis is almost sort of comes fourth or fifth on the run of, of why people come to the event now because they're, they're coming to see live music, they're coming to have a party on Grand Slam Oval with four or five of their friends, they're, they're coming to bring their family to the ballpark. So there's, we know that, that people spend about nine to 10 hours on site when they come. So how do you fill in that nine to 10 hours? Because nine to 10 hours of, of tennis is a lot of tennis. Three to four hours of tennis is probably good for a lot of people. Uh, and that's probably one watching one match or watching two parts of two matches. So yeah, what is it that, that keeps people coming back year on year, I think is really important. What what even keeps them coming back multiple times in one year? So whether that's uh, 
that's different experience through music or entertainment, making sure that they they not only come once to watch the tennis, but they also then come a second or third time to see a band that they've wanted to see but haven't been able to get to because it's inaccessible when there's they're uh, performing at, at a smaller smaller venue that only has a couple of thousand tickets where they can get access to it via the Australian Open. So there's a, a lot of a lot of learnings and a lot of thought goes into our event year on year and how to make that better. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear you say that. And touching on activations and campaigns, I know the Uber Eats campaign's been one that's been really well recognized. Would you mind sharing that experience with the listeners? Yeah, the Uber Eats campaign was a great a great campaign to work on. It uh, it was pretty unique in the way it came about. It it was a few different ideas that came together from I guess Channel Nine, the Uber team, their agencies and Tennis Australia. And it was so last minute. It it couldn't have been pulled together any quicker. So I think it was early January when uh, we decided that the campaign was going to happen and we had to find a way to make it happen because it was so good. I think I don't think any brand had ever tried to integrate into particularly the Australian Open or any other sporting event as seamlessly as this was going to be done. So when we caught up with the production agency and the brand and, and our internal stakeholders and whatnot, there was some pushback to how do we make this happen on the eve of a Grand Slam when you're wanting access to the courts and you're wanting access to players and then we've got a film, how do we how do we give players the right access to Rod Laver Arena and Margaret Court Arena to practice in the, the days leading up to the event when you want to shoot a TV commercial there? So we we eventually worked around the fact that we just have to shoot in the middle of the night or early, early morning when players weren't practicing. And so I think the first shoot started at about 10 or 11 p.m. on about the 5th or 6th of January, so only a few days before the event started. And we had the likes of Nick Kyrgios, Caroline Wozniacki, Rafael Nadal, uh, Tanasi Kokonakis, Dasha Gavrilova. There was, there was a big list of, of players that were involved. And getting someone like Caroline on court at 5am or 6am is, is not easy and there's challenges that have to go around with that. And, and getting crew on site through security with the right, uh, the right accreditations and, and whatnot in the lead up to the event once we're in complete lockdown is, is also not an easy feat. When you then add one to 200 extras that are going to be crowd uh, in the background of shots onto that as well and trying to get them into the site through the middle of the night and early, early morning also comes with its its challenges. So it was an amazing campaign to work on. It moved so quickly. Uh, that was what surprised me the most is how three or four different teams from different organisations could come together to bring something to life as successfully as that was in such a short period of time. And I think from, from the players to the camera crew, to the extras, to the ball kids that we had, like everyone knew exactly what they had to do, where they had to be and just how, 
how short of a window we had to make it happen. And then all credit due to the uh, the team at, at Uber for taking the gamble to to run that campaign and, and hold off on the first couple of, of days of the event because when we shot, I think it was the Rafa, the Rafa campaign, it was shot in the evening or, or under lights where it was dark, but his first round match was actually played during the day on a different court. So they wanted to hold off. They took a gamble that he, he would win that first round match and his second round match would be then at night on Rod Laver Arena. So huge, huge gamble for them, but they took it and it paid off. And I think when when everyone first saw that campaign sneak into their their TV screen, into the broadcast, and when Caroline or or Nadal was about to serve or was arguing with the umpire, I think it it fooled a lot of people, and and I got fooled as well. I, I happily admit I was at home watching uh, one of the matches <laughs> later in the later in the um, tournament, and the Caroline ad came on, and for a second I thought we were back in the in the game, but uh, funnily enough she'd actually been knocked out about one or two rounds earlier and about five or 10 seconds into the ad, I'm just sitting there shaking my head thinking, Oh, they've got me. <laughs> We've done such a good job. Yeah, that I've, I've got myself. <laughs> I still remember the first time it came out and when Rafa was on, it was like you said, an ad between a tense tie break, for example. And then you suddenly see a, a pack of Uber Eats come out with chicken teriyaki or something. And yeah. you go, well, what is going on here? <laughs> it was so great. Clearly, the marketing creative team's done a genius job there. And I, I know just reading media articles, a lot of other leagues are now taking inspiration from that campaign, right? So absolutely, sure it's a, a tick in the box. Yeah, very much so. I think, uh, I think consumers are a lot smarter about consuming their, their sport and advertisements these days as well. And I think gone are the days of, of simply having a, a sponsorship with an ad in the uh, in the ad break that doesn't actually resonate with the consumer. So I think when you've got a a brand that's integrated into the event, and then the sponsor, sorry, the the sponsorship is integrated into the event, and then the TBCs are also integrated, and there's been a thought behind that. I think that resonates a lot more with the consumer, and the brand in turn gets a whole lot more value out of it as well. Yeah, and to round up this bonus segment of this of this episode if you look forward and then we know we're in a new world what do you see as the outlook for sponsorship and brand connection with tennis and Australian Open are there any key key messages or call outs you'd like to share with listeners yeah definitely like you said it's a we're living in a a new world right now um the conversations that we're having in market are, are really positive there's obviously been a a lot of brands who have been turned on their head over the last six months and and no doubt probably will be over the next six months. Um, however, there's I think there's a, a positive outlook, particularly in partnerships, and brands are going to have to get a, a bit more uh, a bit more strategic about how and where they spend their money as well and and what they spend it on. like the the budgets will probably be tightened. Um, we've We've seen that in the past. We've seen that in the last few months, but I think at the same time it it also makes people think creatively, which is really good for us because it opens the doors to a lot more creative thinking and and challenging 
not just our business, but the brands that we're talking to about why are you doing that? Or would you consider doing this? Or do you like this idea? How does this resonate with you? How is it going to resonate with your consumers? Um, and, and how are you going to stand out amongst the different brands that are fighting for that airtime in the future? So I think, um, I think it's, it's good in a way that it's going to shake things up a little bit and it's going to give us the opportunity to get more creative and, and not only challenge ourselves, but challenge those brands in the way that they think as well. Absolutely. I think it's definitely a space to watch and sport, as you've mentioned many times in this episode, is one that people love and it's a good chance for them to get away from some of their daily daily challenges, so to speak. So I'm sure sport will always be a close connection to people. Um, awesome. That's really great perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so we like to end the show with the final sprint. And I know you're a runner, so I'm sure you can <laughs> do a good sprint with me today. <laughs> Fire away. So, so we ask a bunch of questions here to really, again, get to know a bit about yourself and then get to know a bit about what's coming up for yourself in the future. So what's one thing you've learned from snowboarding and skiing that you've applied to life? Um, I think it's like every run's different. Every time you go up and you go down, whether it's in a competition or in training, like it's it's different every time. There's there's no two runs that are the same. And and I think you've got to look at look at work and life like that. Like every day is different. Every day is an opportunity to do something differently or try something different or do it better. And sure, some of those days or runs or or competitions, you'll fail. Absolutely. But it's what you take out of the the next run and the run after that 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 help you learn and and learn from those mistakes that you may have made in the past as well, but also give you the opportunity to try something different and, and hopefully succeed. One thing you love about the teams you worked with, again, you've touched on external and internal stakeholders. I think having a, a team around you that are, are almost more like friends than, than just people who work together. I think that's, that's important. Like building a, building a community and building relationships between those people that that allows trust as well I think that's really important and and having fun while you're doing it like if if you're not having fun then why are you bothering one sporting player that you look up to in tennis or any other sport oh good question um let's not go tennis because there's too many obvious answers there um Let's go something out of the box. Let's, um, good question. I think some anyone that's done something for the first time, like like they've challenged something that, that hasn't been done before. So in there was a skier years and years ago, Johnny Mosley. He was the first skier to do a corked 720, which probably to a lot of people listening means absolutely nothing. He was the first guy to do that in the Olympics. Like he pushed the boundary he was like, I'm going to do this. They basically changed the rules for him. So I think anyone anyone who's willing to try something and push the boundaries as far as they can, um, yeah, all, all props from me for sure. And one thing you want to learn in the next six months? Ooh, I'm playing a lot of golf. I'd probably like to uh, learn how to get my handicap a little bit lower. <laughs> that would be nice. Um like I know it's not work related, but uh, that's sort of my golf has been my outlet for the last 
six months or so to, like you said, get your mind away from what's going on in our in our day to day. Yeah, I think that's a that's absolutely right, and and a lot of people have a similar mindset. So great to hear. Um, awesome. That's I think that's a fantastic way to to round up the episode and and to thank you again for coming on. You've been very candid in some of your experiences about your own career and also sport but tennis australia and the australian open and someone like myself who's a massive tennis fanatic and a sport lover it's really inspiring to listen to that so thank you and i really really excited to share this with the listeners my pleasure there you have it ridley Blummer. i hope you took away some actionable insights and inspiration to apply to your lives and be one percent better every day And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you in a fortnight. Stay tuned.